Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you all for coming along to the annual Fred Halliday Memorial Lecture. My name's Chris Hughes. I'm head of the International Relations Department here. <coughs> and it's really my, my great honor to welcome Professor Anne-Marie Gertz, who is actually one of our alumni, I've just discovered, who actually studied with Fred Halliday, um, who had a big influence on her work. So it's not just that, but also the nature of her work, very much focused on gender and IR, um, that really makes her more suitable than any of the other speakers I think we've had to talk to this memorial lecture series. Uh, Professor Gertz uh, has a very distinguished career both in the academic and policy-making world. Uh, her area of expertise, I think, could be described as focusing on conflict-related sexual violence, politics of the UN Security Council's approach to the protection of civilians. Um, she's been working on uh, issues of development. She's done extensive field work in the developing world, especially in South Asia and Africa. She's currently a clinical professor at the Center for Global Affairs, New York University, where she teaches several graduate courses on gender and international relations. She's the author of five books and a lot of excellent reports uh, for institutions like the United Nations, especially the UN Institute for Social Development. She also uh, was the former Director of Governance, Peace and Security for the UN and former Chief Advisor for Peace and Security for UN Women. I think her work at the UN focused mainly on conflict resolution and peace building with special attention to the role of women. So with a foot both in the policy-making world and in the academic world, um, this, I think, again, is the kind of academic that Fred Halliday always encouraged, someone who's not just excellent academically but also engaged in the real serious politics of the day. Now, before we begin, I have to make a few technological remarks. Um, for Twitter users in the audience, uh, the uh, hash is, hashtag is hash slash LSD, sorry, LSE, <laughs> LSE Halliday. <laughs> now you know why I came here. Um, there should be a podcast available, um, should, I'm told to, I cannot guarantee this. Uh, and at the end, uh, I think uh, Professor Gertz will talk for about 40 minutes and then there'll be plenty of time for Q&A. And after that, we will have a reception to which everybody is invited. So on that note, I hand over now to Professor Gertz to deliver your lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, um, Chris, and thank you all for coming on a rainy evening. Um, I have slightly modified the title. Um, should have let you know, but it's the same thing. The politics of, um, of, of massive policy change in the Security Council on Women, Peace, and Security. Um, it is, of course, a tremendous honor to be invited to give the Fred Halliday Lecture, and incredibly humbling for me, because I was a student, and used to come to lectures in the old theater and never asked a question because I was so intimidated um, by everyone's brilliance. Um, Fred, um, I didn't get to know him all that well when I was a student in 1984, 1984-85. Um, uh, after that, I immediately went to work uh, in, in Africa for the UN, um, changed my mind after a while, and, and, and did a PhD in Cambridge. And at which point I came here to a conference that he was involved in 
on, um, on feminism and IR, one of the first ones on the topic. And uh, Millennium, which I hope still exists, does it? Um, published the proceedings, and the, Fred's lecture in here was a fantastic eye-opener for me because it was a validation of my conviction that you could bring feminism to international relations in extremely interesting ways. Um, um, Fred's, um, usual, in his usual elegant prose, he set out the core logic for a feminist approach um, to international relations, distinguishing between studying the impact of international processes on women and men, as, and then between that and the way gendered values and practices shape uh, those processes in the first place. Now, while it's no surprise that a deeply humane radical like Fred was a feminist, surely some of his conviction in this area is inspired by the intellectual partnership that he enjoyed with his wife, Maxine Molyneux, um, to whom I would also actually like to uh, express my respect um, for her scholarship and my profound gratitude for her support uh, to me um, ever since she and Denise Candiotti, who's also here, examined my thesis. Um, Maxine, of course, is known for her work on human rights, feminist and women's movements, democratization and the state, providing feminists with tools from political science to challenge the gender essentialisms um, that are used in expressing and understanding women's political engagement. And this is an issue that I'm going to return to later. For Fred and Maxine, women's rights are a non-negotiable foundation for any social justice project, as well as for international solidarity in human rights struggles. In Fred's work, this message has become more and more um, insistent, uh, and it became more and more insistent in his open democracy essays um, in the last decade of his life. Um, and uh, in one of these pieces, he actually suggests that, quote, it is conceivable that in cases where national and national religious ideologies subordinate women, even more than was the case under foreign domination, the authority of independent states and of their officially sanctioned cultures should not be taken as supreme. Of course, it's a radical idea in a world of sovereign states. Um, his words are so striking today when the fall of dictatorships after the Arab Spring has ushered in um, abuses uh, of women's rights and attacks on women's rights in some cases. These developments have made it imperative to understand the conditions under which states and the sovereignty-bound institutions to which they belong, the international institutions and regional ones, the conditions under which they take up human rights causes, and specifically women's rights, to the point that they will intervene on behalf of oppressed groups. Human rights, of these intervention, human rights interventions of these types are rare, they're uneven in their effects, and they're sometimes mistaken in their targets, and they're ferociously resisted by abusing parties. And all of these problems are magnified in the case of the defense of women's rights, because, of course, in so many contexts, that's defended as a cultural prerogative. To date, there really only has been one type of major uh, human rights violation uh, involving mainly women, but not only, that has attracted the attention of sanctions committees or international human rights investigations um, or is part of protection of civilians' mandates and peacekeeping missions, and that is conflict-related sexual violence. What I'm going to do today is offer a perspective on the emergence and the evolution of the conflict-related sexual violence agenda at the Security Council. And I'm going to discuss its implications for the feminist project of women's empowerment within the conventional core of international relations, which is peacemaking and peace building and conflict prevention, of course. 
And I'm going to ask whether the particular process through which it has evolved has distorted or expanded space for feminist ambitions for social change and women's empowerment. So I'm going to be covering three themes, and I'm going to quickly mention them here in case I run out of time and don't get back to them. So the first one is the cunning of patriarchy, question mark. Um, the Security Council has four resolutions on conflict-related sexual violence, and this is a response to a historic, an overdue response to a historically neglected war crime. But it's now apparent that there is divergence in the Council's attention to this issue. There's a divergence between a focus on women as victims, as sexually violated subjects, and a commitment to bringing gender issues into foreign policy, a commitment to advancing women's leadership and rights in international relations. So there's a divergence. Um, so has engaging with the Council on prosecuting sexual violence in, and trying to stop sexual violence in conflict, has that actually ended up reinforcing a patriarchal dominant masculinist frame for looking at gender issues um, in international relations? So has all this work really succumbed to the cunning of patriarchy and to path dependence of a masculinist, frankly, quite patriarchal institution? So that's the first question I'm going to be addressing. Second, I'm going to be arguing very strongly that uh, feminist policy analysis needs an ethnography of the process of policy negotiation. There are a number of very important critiques by feminists of conflict-related sexual violence initiatives, um, and also they're joined by masculinity scholars and people who are addressing LGBTI issues. These critiques tend to focus on the texts of Security Council resolutions or the discourse as expressed in, for instance, the June 2014 um, summit on sexual violence here in London. Um, and they aim to deconstruct the power and authority behind um, these resolutions. But to my surprise, on reading them after leaving the UN two years ago, because the fact is, even an academic at the UN doesn't have a lot of time to read academic work. Hate to break it to you. Um, but these critiques actually, to my surprise, rarely investigate the history and the process of producing these policy changes, as well as implementing them, which is another huge question. There's two important and crucial political dynamics that are, to my surprise, neglected. One is geopolitical tensions within the Security Council itself and how it shapes outcomes. And the second is power battles within the UN, within bureaucracies. My third general point is um, totally self-serving, and it's to valorize the role of the Femocrat and the insider. Um, and I'm going to be describing in some detail an important feminist policy insurgency, which was the effort to bring, to define sexual violence as an international security issue. Um, uh, the tactics, the alliances, the dead ends, the roles of individual champions, of norm entrepreneurs, the paths not taken, the sacrifices at the negotiating table. Looking at these processes not only illuminate significant gains that have been missed by critics, but also reveal the sites of really important failures, really important dug-in resistance to women's rights that are not actually currently addressed in feminist critiques uh, or even in feminist activism in relation to the UN. Um, in calling for attention to uh, the detail of feminist policy insurgency, I'm also kind of hoping to enrich the historical record. And that was something that suddenly seemed important to me after reading Jimmy Carter's new book, A Call to Action, 
Women, Religion, Violence, and Power, where he attributes the emergence of the Security Council's agenda on sexual violence um, to these two individuals. Um, and I don't want to uh, take away from their important contribution, which is enormously significant, but it came after the fact. It came after the policy groundwork was laid. So I'm going to focus in particular on the production of the first breakthrough resolution, which was in 2008, Resolution 1820 on the Council. It profoundly changed the Council's thinking about sexual violence, away from being a humanitarian problem and a women's issue to being a matter of international peace and security. So many of you will have remembered uh, this poster in the subway, uh, the tube, last June, June 2014, not, not this last June, um, which was, of course, uh, William Hague's huge initiative. And this level of international commitment, with 80 foreign ministers coming to discuss the issue, pledging millions of dollars to the problem, with a foreign minister of a very important global power bringing this issue up for the G8 to address, um, was just unimaginable in 2005 when I joined the UN. This attention now is much more than lip service and rhetoric. Yes, there is still the phenomenon of mass rape in conflict, and we're seeing, of course, Daesh uh, in, in Syria and Iraq uh, enacting this in a very bureaucratic, highly organized way. But elsewhere, where the international community is engaging through peacekeeping, patterns of intelligence gathering, military patrolling, force generation, equipment, training, uh, human rights monitoring, security sector reform, transitional justice responses have changed very significantly to address this problem. But as recently as 2007, I was part of a conversation with Security Council ambassadors where they said they understood it was a problem, but they didn't think it was an international peace and security problem. They um, uh, couldn't see the, the link to international crises, they, and at the time, UN peacekeepers, for instance, received no training on sexual violence. They didn't even receive training on gender. Um, they um, were not equipped to deal with it. They didn't have, uh, there were very few, there still are very few women soldiers um, and translators, which are crucial. At that time, mediators would turn a blind eye when amnesties were offered for sexual violence in political dialogue. In uh, peace processes, these were used as bargaining chips to get parties to come to the table. You can have amnesty for sexual violence if you come and talk. Um, sexual violence was rarely, if in fact there were just less than a handful of cases of sexual violence being mentioned in a ceasefire agreement. That meant that when the guns fell silent, sexual violence could continue to be used as a means of prosecuting the conflict. There was a strong sense that sexual violence in conflict was unstoppable, inevitable, and within the UN, I actually heard the term used, boys will be boys, to describe um, the problem of the crime, frankly, of sexual exploitation and abuse by UN peacekeepers, uniformed peacekeepers and humanitarian officials um, abusing subject, uh, subject host country populations. Um, Boys will be boys, of course, uh, is a term that suggests uh, a particular heteronormative framing of sexuality, um, as well as a sense of um, a, a natural drive that cannot be stopped under any circumstances. Um, just a year later, literally just one year later, the U.S. administration, and it was the last year of the Bush administration, introduced a resolution in the Council, 1820, 
the one that I'm going to talk about, that identified widespread and systematic sexual violence as a tactic of warfare that, and, and a matter of international peace and security because it can drive population flight, as we've seen in Syria, where refugees say the reason they're fleeing is they don't want their children to be raped. Um, uh, it is, um, since then, another um, three resolutions have built um, the, the, the legislative territory on this topic. Um, because it's defined as a tactic of warfare, the crucial change is that now it is something that is amenable to political and military responses, not just humanitarian responses, not just justice responses, but political uh, dialogue and military deployment can be adjusted to try to stop it. There's an agreement now that uh, it's a responsibility of peacekeeping missions to address it. There is a special representative of the Secretary General, an SRSG, on sexual violence in conflict. It's a very high-level position with the mandate to report independently on the problem to the Security Council and to name alleged perpetrators, to list them and delist them if they merit delisting. So this is a huge paradigm shift. But how can we understand this reframing? It's a reframing that connects a marginalized discourse to a central one. Um, it's, a, it's an act of power. It's an intervention in the governance of security in international society. It's a quite a significant difference. The trouble is, there's none of the usual suspects involved. Until the last few weeks before the resolution was introduced, there were no clear powerful actors advocating it. Unlike other human rights processes, campaigns, and issues, no important council member had stepped forward to act as a champion until just before, as I mentioned. Sexual violence is not a war wound that attracts the sustained outrage of global leaders the way the abuse of child soldiers does. Unlike some other human rights abuses, the international community had not, comp had not sought to compensate for the lack of voice of the victims in putting pressure on, nego on negotiators and peacekeepers to address the issue. As for a constituency demanding attention, obviously there's many women's and human rights organizations, national and international, that address the issue. But there was a problem. Feminist peace organizations, especially like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, as well as the Hague Appeal for Peace, were deeply divided on whether to deal with the Security Council at all. They felt that this would um, be a violation of their principles of pacifism. International humanitarian organizations, like Médecins Sans Frontières, IRC, and so on, don't, as a rule, engage with the Security Council because of the need to protect humanitarian space and its impartiality and keep it uh, demilitarized. International human rights organizations were a better bet. IRC and Amnesty turned out, in the end, to be quite helpful, but at this time that I'm talking about, 2005 to 2008, um, Amnesty was involved in a violence against women campaign, but were focused on prosecutions whenever they dealt with sexual violence and conflict, and they didn't want to work with the Security Council. As for the victims of this violence, the women, the men, the children who are affected, um, as you can imagine, in conflict states, these, these groups do not const constitute a significant political force. So um, this is what's led to the crime being called history's greatest silence. It takes place off the field of battle, the war wound inflicted is not immediately visible. It's not uh, a space that's monitored by media. So in understanding this, um, uh, this e policy evolution, we find that whether you take, uh, oh, sorry, that's the bifurcated agenda. Whether you take a realist or a constructivist perspective on IR, it's a little bit hard to understand the emergence of this agenda. A realist perspective wouldn't predict the change in the council's practice. It's hard to see why states would see it in their interest, in national self-interest, 
to be defending the rights of rape victims in conflict countries. Uh, and this is particularly so in the context of serious tensions in the Security Council on human rights issues in generally, and in the protection of civilians agenda, and quite soon after this period in the responsibility to protect agenda. But from a constructivist position, which I find can explain almost everything, um, it's also not obvious that this issue would have occurred because constructivists do look at the role of norm entrepreneurs, but usually these, uh, these entrepreneurs require a transactional advocacy network to push member st nations to see particular interests as being in their self-interest. Um, in the end, um, what I think is a useful explanation for the change in thinking comes from new institutionalism, from the work of people like Fiona McKay, Michael Bennett, Martha Finmore, Georgina Whalen, Louis Chappelle, who actually give a, a cr critical space to the role of bureaucratic culture and the staff of bureaucracies and the social stuff that bureaucracies are made of, their rules of, in, their, 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 um, rules of the game. Um, and they show how, um, how uh, bureaucracies are involved um, in a kind of a principal-agent tension with countries, where countries and international institutions are the principals, bureaucrats are their agents, countries are always trying to control bureaucrats, and bureaucrats are trying to push countries to do a better thing. Um, and that is the story that I'm going to tell you about. All right, so... Even if you accept the role of bureaucratic insiders and say that it might be important, again, this is a little bit hard to predict because the bureaucratic insiders I'm talking about right now, uh, and one of them's in the audience, come from probably the most marginalized part of the UN, um, the gender ghetto. Uh, any of you who plan to work on women's rights better get ready for this experience of uh, being locked away in a marginalized, um, underfunded part of any institution you choose to work for. It's okay, you can get a lot done there. Um, so at the time this policy story was taking place, the uh, mega agency UN Women didn't exist. Um, the UN gender entities were tiny and fighting with each other, I'm sorry to say. Humanitarian agencies were doing what they could to support victims, but no single UN entity had the mandate and capability of coordinating a stitched up response. Um, to the wide range of legal, military, political, humanitarian, peacekeeping, peacebuilding actions needed. The Department of Political Affairs was frankly the best placed agency to do something. The Department of Political Affairs, DPKO, manages um, peacekeeping interventions and missions on the ground. So it was best placed to manage protection. And the Department of did I say political affairs? The Department of Peacekeeping Operations, I'm so sorry, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. They were the best place to handle protection. The Department of Political Affairs was the best place to handle women's leadership in all of this, women's political participation, women's engagement as agents in the process of developing security responses. But neither of these traditional secretariat agencies wanted to change their policies on this, and none of them had any policies on this anyway. So in March 2007, a small a group of femocrats, feminist bureaucrats, myself, certainly Kathleen Crevero in, D in UNDP, Pam DeLargy in UNFPA, Kate Burns in uh, OCHA, uh, Claudia Garcia Moreno in um, WHO, got together and said the only way to get DPKO and, D and DPA on board and to push them to do their job is let's form a coalition of UN entities and make it exciting. Um, so that they're going to want to join. And somehow we managed to do that, and we formed UN Action Against Sexual Violence in Conflict, which is a coalition of 13 entities that work together today. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you have to do when you work on gender, when your job is to get other people to do their job. 
thankless task. Nobody loves you for it. Um, then we set about the job of trying to explain why a resolution was needed. Now, in, 2000, in, the, in the period I'm, I'm discussing, there already was a resolution on women, peace, and security. For those of you who are new to this area, it's 1325. It's an incredibly interesting and unusual resolution for the Security Council. It was drafted pretty much entirely by civil society. And it links women's experience of conflict to international peace and security and argues forcefully for women's engagement in conflict resolution. It relies quite heavily on what we call essentialist language. Um, women are seen as natural peace builders. Um, so a lot of the argumentation is language that many feminists would now find, uh, do now find very troubling. Nevertheless, it implicated the council in a social change project. It said that gender equality is actually foundational to peaceful democratic societies. And if the council was wanting to promote international peace, it had to produce gender equality. It's a subject that the council is deeply uneasy about, and I'll come back to Russia and China's views on this in a moment. Um, so 1325 set up two imperatives for the council. Uh, a women's participation imperative, and I'm going to use that word not to describe women in processes, which is important, but more bringing a gender perspective to all aspects of peace and security. So there was a participation imperative and a um, protection imperative. Now, in any other human rights resolution, whether it's about refugees, children in armed conflict, responsibility to protect, the initial breakthrough resolution is usually followed rapidly by a series of legislative steps to strengthen accountability for the implementation of that resolution. But in the case of women, peace, and security, that didn't happen. Silence for eight years. No development at all. So as part of my own almost decade-long effort to strengthen accountability mechanisms for both sides of the agenda, participation and protection, I did make the decision that protection was going to be the low-hanging fruit. And I thought it emerged in 2005 as the obvious starting point for several reasons. First, because the issue already had the authority of international humanitarian law. It already was a war crime. It was outrageous that the Council wasn't acting on it. But second also, because in 2005, reporting started to pile up from conflict zones about new examples of mass rape in conflict, notably in Darfur and in um, DRC. And our objective in UN Action was to figure out how to get the Council to understand that there was a difference between national responsibility for sexual violence and international responsibility. So that brings us to, um, I'm going to come back to this this beautiful animated slide. I will just finish by saying we now have an architecture of accountability, quite an extraordinary one. Um, the resolutions marked in red are the sexual violence ones, and the black ones are participation, uh, gender equality, women's rights. Um, things to note at this point, and I will come back to them, this was introduced by Namibia, US, US. Vietnam, US. UK, UK. UK. That's important. The sponsor of the resolution is important. I'll come back to it. And of course, another important thing to notice, you can't miss, is that there's a leapfrogging. There's a seesawing between the different agendas. Protection, sorry, participation, protection, protection, participation, protection, protection, participation, participation. Damn it. Um, so there's obviously almost a map here of tension, political tension, in the uh, Security Council which maps onto the story I'm going to tell about institutional tension, feminist tension, and so on. 
So our first challenge was to reframe um, sexual violence, first as an international security problem. And we had to show, if it's an international security problem, we had to show that it drives conflict, it has consequences for recovery, but above all, that there's command responsibility. And to do that, we developed this framework that distinguished between widespread and isolated incidents and systematic and random. The category that falls into the Council's purview, unquestionably, is in this quadrant. This is um, sexual violence deployed to advance military or political objectives on a mass scale. And it's commanded, as in the Bosnian rape camps, or as in the ISIS uh, buses to ship uh, uh, hijacked Yazidi women to uh, slave markets. It's commanded and organized. But it can also be, uh, there can also be command responsibility even if it's not directly commanded. So if commanders know it's happening and condone it and don't stop it, they are also liable for prosecution uh, for a crime against humanity, a war crime, crimes sometimes associated with genocide. These kinds of crimes uh, trigger panic, flight, uh, make it impossible for communities to recover because they've destroyed social fabric. That's an international peace and security problem. Um, this is uh, the type of uh, sexual violence, um, systematic, in other words, organized but isolated, which is a different category, sometimes is an international crime. Um, but this is where sexual violence is a form of torture used to prosecute narrowly defined political objectives. For example, uh, torture in, um, in the jails in Chile under Pinochet or torture right now in, uh, in, in um, custody in, in jails in um, Syria. Um, this is a domestic criminal matter. These are isolated incidents that are intended to pursue no military or political objective unrelated to organized strategy. This is um, uh, a matter for the police in a particular country. And this is a very tricky one. The legal status of this is unclear, widespread and random when there's so much sexual violence and so much impunity that it becomes socially normalized. Um, and it's uh, not particularly targeted necessarily on particular ethnic, social groups. Um, it affects men and women, girls and boys, sometimes LGBTI groups. Uh, it exploits state failure, but it's a very difficult category to know what is international responsibility for this issue. Um, permitting this kind of um, chaos to reign will trigger eventually um, conflict situations that um, spill over borders and affect international peace. Another uh, problem in this framework that I'm sure you've immediately picked up is where does peacekeeper sexual violence fit in all of this? Where, where do, what category does that fall into? It doesn't, it, it's not designed to um, pursue a military objective, but it can be condoned. There are cases even of commanders organizing it um, and allegations in Amisom in Somalia that some commanders helped to organize um, brothels with trafficked women, for example. So uh, where does that category fit uh, in this situation? And as you all probably know, sexual exploitation and abuse is a great, uh, huge blotch on the UN. It diminishes its credibility in doing anything on this issue at all. And uh, it's never effectively prosecuted because the perpetrators are sent back to their sending countries for prosecution. They are not prosecuted in the country where the crime is committed, and there is no international tribunal to address it it actually became one of our greatest regrets um, that we did not deal with this at this time, and I'll explain why in a minute. Second conceptual reframing, uh, which was actually more revolutionary and important, was to say that it could be stopped. It wasn't inevitable. It wasn't a manifestation of apparently uncontrollable uh, male sexuality. 
Um, and um, the, uh, this was a very productive shift in, in, um, in, in this process. And, and what actually what triggered it in, in the case of my part of the story is that uh, in 2007, I was in the elevator in the UN, the uh, UNIFEM building, and a young Australian lawyer approached me saying, you have to give me a job because I can prove that you can stop sexual violence. So I said, okay, give it a go. And good advice for people looking for jobs after you get your master's is to try that out. Um, she also used appealing terms like, I've got an incredible work ethic, which you know, works on me. Um, and uh, so she, I hired her, and she, she produced an extraordinary piece of research which documented, it was an inventory um, of peacekeeping best practices already being experimented with on the ground to prevent sexual violence. Now, who knew? We'd been working with the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. They never told us that any commanders were trying things out. And indeed, these were not official practices. These were not found in the concepts of operations that commanders develop when mapping out tactical responses to their security environment. These were experiments by people who cared, who saw that if they have to protect women, sorry, civilians, women are civilians too, therefore they have to adapt to their needs. And these were things like, seems so obvious, sending a, a military patrol to accompany women who are gathering firewood when they're leaving um, refugee or IDP camps so they don't get raped on the way. Um, there were also some kind of interesting ones that we hadn't expected, such as in eastern Congo, one commander was sending trucks full of troops into the forest in the middle of the night, keeping the lights on and blaring rap music all night. And in the morning, there'd be 3,000 villagers camped underneath the trucks because they would have come from surrounding areas for protection. Another commander worked with women to develop smoke signals when the women were pretty sure that there were attacks on the way, when they knew that there were Mai Mai militia active in the area. Um, another commander shifted his patrols from 2 p.m. on the main road on the highway um, uh, between major centers. He shifted the patrols from then to 2 a.m. in the morning till 6 when women were going from home to water points to collect water, which is when they'd be attacked. So what we were seeing was a shift in the space and time of peacekeeping, a complete revolution in the understanding of what it was all about. None of this was standard oper operating protocol. None of this was under the rules of engagement. Keck and Sinking identify this as proving that a given state of affairs is neither natural nor accidental, identifying the responsible parties and proposing credible solutions. And to us, that last part was incredibly valuable. So then, what, where'd we go from there? We had a beautiful argument. We had evidence. I haven't told you that part of the story because of time. So we needed to get some help, and we couldn't get help from the usual suspects for reasons I've mentioned. So a series of fortuitous events um, led us to the ambassador, his wife, the general, and the helicopter pilot, which might make an interesting title for a film someday. Um, we had to break out from the gender ghetto, and we did approach the chief military advisor of the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, who at the time was not really convinced and very interested. But he had a logistics officer in his office, Hawa El Tayeb, who had worked with UNIFEM in Burundi in, in the year 2000 to transport seven uh, um, uh, women from uh, Burundi to the peace talks in Arusha to argue women's case. And she told us, uh, she gave us an incredibly valuable tip. She said, there's a lot of really messed up, didn't use that word, um, generals uh, who've been serving in these contexts. You should talk to them. 
This was an incredibly valuable tool because it led us to General Patrick Cameron, to General Festus Oconquo, to General pa uh, Daniel Opande, and sometimes to, um, to, to General, La General Lazarus Sumbeo. All of these were former uh, force commanders who dealt with high levels of sexual violence. And they wanted to change practice. They wanted to do something. And they told us, yes, of course you can stop it if you want to. There's ways to do it. You need different force generation. We need more women, uh, uniformed personnel. We need different intel. We need more translators. We need night vision goggles. Uh, it's got implications for peacekeeping. But nevertheless, they delivered this information. It was Patrick Cameron who, at the opening of a very important meeting, uttered the following sentence, which basically stitched up this whole process for us. He said, it can be more dangerous to be a woman than a soldier in contemporary warfare, which, of course, um, was very helpful vis-a-vis -vis the Security Council. The U.S. ambassador and his wife. Well, first of all, we had another ambassador who started working with us. Actually, I'll come, back. I'll come to that in a second. So... Um, with regard to Security Council ambassadors, um, you never approach them directly, especially when you're talking from a marginal, um, sidelined part of the UN. You work with the, the gender counselor, who is usually at the lowest rung of uh, UN mission staff, almost always a temporary employee. And an important ally, actually, with, within the UK mission was the helicopter pilot, a Royal Navy um, Marine, uh, I guess, pilot who had uh, worked in the Sierra Leone assault of 2000 and seen what sexual violence means, Phil Saltonstall. I'm sure it's going to elevate your respect for him to know that he, after this whole process, quit uh, the UN and he's brewing uh, vegan organic beer in uh, Yorkshire. Um, anyway, so he was extraordinary, totally got the issue and nailed for us uh, the UK ambassador, Karen Pierce who is a feminist uh, whose feminism has survived the um, erosion of occupation of high office, which is a rare thing. Um, but we needed more than that. And the UK is important because the UK is called the pen holder on women, peace, and security. It provides uh, draftings to support within the, the Security Council for anything on, on gender. Um, a, luckily, a lucky coincidence delivered us an extraordinary ally, which is the wife of Zamal Khalilzad, the American ambassador, as I said, Bush appointee, his wife is called Cheryl Bernard, and um, she took it upon herself out of the blue to do something quite extraordinary that should have been done already, which was she invited all the senior women in the UN, Suzanne Malcora, Alison Barsena, Anne Vellemans, Rachel Mayanja, Nolene Hazer, all the senior women to tea. She invited them to tea in her apartment at Waldorf Astoria three times in the fall of 2007. And these were awful affairs because we, she would sit there and she would ask everyone, so, ladies, what are you doing about rape in Congo? <laughs> and everybody would sit there with their teacups and their saucers rattling and eating their miniature brownies and um, f facing the fact that there was no internal coordination. Now, I'm not going to tell you that internal co coordination resulted from this, but what she did deliver us to us on a plate was her husband by forcing him in the spring of 2008 to watch the Greatest Silence, which was a film that was released by Lisa Jackson about mass rape in Congo. He watched it, and having resisted for three weeks my invitation to him to come to Wilton Park to a conference on this, he accepted immediately. Um, the media was also an incredibly important part in this story um, because of the reporting on, of uh, Nick Kristof and Jeffrey Gettleman on Darfur and DRC at the time. And in fact, it was from Jeffrey Gettleman that we got that story about the peacekeepers and the trucks and the lights and the villagers. 
And finally, the last tactic was wiklou, putting them all together in a room where they couldn't escape. Um, you can't do that in, in New York, but we um, went to Wilton Park, not far from here, where in fact post-World War II uh, arrangements were discussed with the German authorities, an important place for private conversations. And we got Security Council ambassadors in the same room with these generals that I've mentioned, as well as rape victims and their advocates from conflict situations. We did not invite the usual suspects. We did not invite the big international NGOs. We did not invite feminist organizations. It was just them. Um, that was in uh, the end of May 2008, and at that meeting we drafted Resolution 1820. And something you need to know, and everybody who critiques UN Security Council resolutions needs to know, that these resolutions are not drafted by the Security Council. They're drafted by the junior staff of missions in collaboration, depending on the issue, with the big voices on the issue. So they're drafted with transnational advocacy networks. They're drafted with feminists in New York. They're drafted with children's rights advocates. And they're drafted by bureaucrats. They're often, the first draft is often produced by, by bureaucrats within the NGO. Oh, sorry, within the UN. Okay, so critiques. Is this all doing more harm than, group, than good? The ink had not even dried on the first draft of Resolution 1820 before a blistering critique was launched by two of the bedrocks of the women's peace movement, Sanam Andalini and Cora Weiss, both of whom had drafted parts of 1325. And they, their main critique was that there was no need for any further legislative development in the council. Don't mess with something if it's not broken. 1325 is good enough. Um, and our argument was actually, it is broken. It's not good enough. We need to go a lot farther. Um, um, they also made the first point that has been resonating subsequently, that the resolution focused on women as victims. It was a gender essentialization. It limited uh, the, the way women are perceived. So I'm going to rapidly, because of time, address critiques, um, very important critiques, by a number of feminist um, analysts like Vasuki Nasia, Roz Pachetsky, Laura Shepard, Gina Heathcote, Karen Engel, Diane Otto, Hillary Charlesworth. Some may be here so I'd welcome your feedback. Many of them are involved in the new um, LSE Center on, on, on these issues. Other critiques have come also from uh, scholars on masculinity and uh, also LGBTI scholars and interest groups. Um, so the critiques, as I've said, they focus on the way the conflict-related sexual violence agenda reinforces latent gender essentialisms and, and thus generate a protective, controlling set of actions by the Security Council that failed to address the patriarchal project that both animates and guarantees the effectiveness of sexual violence. So they say there's little space in this view for understanding women as, for example, soldiers, peace negotiators, holders of political office, or perpetrators of violence themselves, including, let's not forget, perpetrators of sexual violence. There has been one major international conviction of a woman for perpetrating and organizing sexual violence. And of course, any specificity of, in, of intersectional dynamics like race, class, age, and so on vanish from view. So has it really done more harm than good? Has it really essentialized the victim? And certainly when you see posters like this, stop raping our resource, or another one from DRC, rape a woman, rape a nation, that definitely essentializes and connects women's sexuality to uh, community values as opposed to um, doing this uh, as a matter of um, individual right. Um, so the, the critique of, of uh, setting up the idea that, that um, 
that women are victims, uh, victimized in this approach, is, is devastating. And it's part of a uh, substantial, serious critique also of the work of Femocrats in um, government institutions and international institutions, the most vocal proponent of which is Janet Haley, a lawyer at Harvard, who calls it governance feminism. And um, this quote is, is just devastating. Merging into the mainstream effaces the fingerprints, the feminist fingerprints on these projects, and that feminists exploit and then reinforce um, a victim dynamic, uh, and of course feed into a kind of almost pornography of war and despair. And we can certainly see, I think, that dynamic in the speeches from the June 2014 uh, summit here in the UK, um, where um, there was little mention of women as leaders. There were all male panels. We call them mammals these days. Um, there were more, or it seemed to me in the plenary sessions, there were at least as many, if not more, victim, male victims of sexual violence speaking. Um, and the focus in the speeches was very strongly on prosecution and protection, with masculinist posturing and belligerent calls to, um, you know, you, there's no place to hide, we're going to get you, um, you're warned, you're, you know, you're on guard, you have to be on guard. The most damning part of this critique is the suggestion that the Femocrats that I'm representing and that, I, that I, I still am are patriarchal stooges who wittingly or not advance a patriarchal, in fact, a phallic campaign that reduces women to passive sexual victims. Um, the New York University-based scholar Vasuki Nasia adapts this critique to women's peace and security specifically. Haley developed her critique in relation to the International Criminal Court and quite specifically to the work of Catherine McKinnon. Um, but uh, Vasuki adapts this to the work on peace and security and um, actually calls a huge alarm about any engagement of women with the countering violent extremism agenda, which of course is on everybody's mind because of the events not, not even a week ago in Paris. And Vasuki Nasia says, international conflict feminism has provided feminism with extraordinary power and influence in the realm of international law and policy, to which I respond, I wish. Um, but it reproduces these harmful understandings of gender differences. Um, and she says, non-Western women's autonomy is undermined by the approach of high-profile Western gender experts who gain agency through the construction of victims of sexual violence as the other woman who the international um, system must set about rescuing. So, um, as you can imagine, when we read this and these critiques, we were just devastated I forced my staff to form reading groups to discuss this in detail. Um, we were just heartbroken that we'd done the wrong thing. And um, then we started kind of trying to address this, this issue more carefully. Um, and I'm going to start by just looking at the text of resolutions. So we're going to go back to the list. Um, I haven't got the last one there for a reason I'll explain. So even critics of the sexual violence resolutions like Heathcote and Laura Shepard, Diane Otto, have had to admit that the content has become much more nuanced and sophisticated over time. Um, there's more and more attention to the structural foundations of gender-based discrimination. There's an increasingly insistent focus on women's participation and leadership in shaping protection strategies. There's a focus on strengthening civil society in fragile states. Um, and finally, as Heathcote herself notes, um, with regard to um, Resolution 2122, um, it projects the participation and implementation directives inward to the Council itself 
as a site where gendered assumptions have to be changed. But this demand for self-examination was there already in the text of 1820, and possibly even more strongly than now. So in 1820, um, I've quoted the relevant piece there, in paragraph 3, there's an extraordinary phrase. Um, paragraph 3 calls on um, all those involved in country in conflict to take appropriate measures to protect civilians from all forms of sexual violence, which could include debunking the myths that fuel sexual violence. I'm sure there are Security Council experts here, and I challenge you, I truly do, to find another piece of legislation from the Council that uses the word debunking. It's an extraordinary idea, and it invokes the Council's responsibility to understand the structural causes of sexual violence and to address the asymmetries in gender relations that create the myths and biases of cultural systems, where, for example, women's sexual integrity is at the root of family honor or national identity. These are the myths that fuel sexual violence in the first place. So the Council also has to examine the contribution of this violence to social inequalities and scripts of male dominance and violent masculinities that help to drive conflict. Now, the last two resolutions, um, I haven't put 2242, which was passed just a few weeks ago, up there because I haven't got any feminist critiques of it yet. Um, They've not been published yet. But the last two resolutions introduce more and more direct measures to ensure women's input to peace and security decisions, more consultations between the Security Council and civil society, Um, direct briefings to the Council by women in civil society and by the head of UN Women, a demand that mediators and special representatives and envoys consult with women within 30 days of hitting the ground in a conflict situation and set up regular and consequential discussions. A demand now that performance indicators for senior UN leaders should include indicators on the degree to which they've advanced a gender equality agenda. So I think um, I'm going to come back to those points, but I think the limitations about making assumptions about the feminist intentions behind resolution language, the limitations of saying, oh, you know, this is um, feminism from the South, this is governance feminism, this is governance feminism, This is feminism from the South. This is governance, governance, South, South. Um, The the limitations of giving feminist or labels to the feminisms embodied in this text um, can be kind of illustrated in particular in the contrast between these two resolutions, 1888 and 1889. You can tell from the numbers that they were sequential, and you can tell from the dates, the dates that they were passed within two days, uh, five days of each other. One addresses sexual violence, and it was introduced by the U.S. One addresses women's development, gender equality, the need to engage women in local government in conflict situations, women's needs for education and health care for their participation to be meaningful. Both of them make a critical contribution to the gender architecture of the U.N. The contribution this one makes is it sets up the office of the independent speaker on sexual violence, the SRSG on sexual violence currently occupied by Zana Bangura from Sierra Leone. This one demands that gender become a core part of the UN's peacebuilding, new peacebuilding architecture, the peacebuilding commission, the peacebuilding support office, and the peacebuilding funds. And the consequence of that demand are quite far-reaching in terms of releasing millions of dollars for work on uh, gender and and peacebuilding and for changing the framework of the UN's peacebuilding. So both of them make a big contribution. Um, But Gina Heathcote describes this as demonstrating the pull of governance feminism in post-millennial U.S. politics. So uh, exploiting specific forms of female vulnerability, uh, it's basically a neoliberal project. That's what this is described as. 
This one, on the other hand, is praised as addressing the structural factors that inhibit women's participation. And there's much else besides, which is highly praised in these two resolutions. But my question is, critics of these texts, do they ever ask, how can it be that within five days, two such different policy documents, pieces of international law, are produced by the same institution? How can that be? How can that be? So that, it's actually quite important to ask that question. Why is it? Um, and in order to answer that question, um, it is important to, um, to address the, the power dynamics behind the production of these resolutions. Uh, I'm sorry, the last ones also have received high, high, high praise. Um, okay, so council dynamics. Um, as I've mentioned before, making the connection between gender equality, women's, women's um, participation, and uh, security can be understood to implicate the council in a major social change project. Um, and that's what 1325 does. Now, right from the start, many council members were distinctly uneasy about this, uh, often arguing that this was a developmental concern, more appropriate to ECOSOC, to the General Assembly, to the Human Rights Council, China, and unevenly, Russia have made, uh, I'm sorry, other way around, Russia and sometimes ambiguously China have held this position. Um, and uh, they are joined periodically by non-permanent council members who share their point of view and for whom women's empowerment um, is not a security issue. It's considered a highly cultural issue um, over which international discussion is inappropriate. Um, so in recent years, this complaint has been voiced quite loudly by India, Pakistan, and Azerbaijan on the council and is shared by the G77 um, uh, quite often. Um, that what, that's what makes the Vietnam resolution so surprising. Sorry. Um, and what happened here is that, um, and again, this is why understanding the micro process is very important, um, starting in, in 2008, uh, UNIFEM, along with uh, UN Action, the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, and several other, other agencies, would regularly write to new council members and say, don't you want some training on women, peace, and security? To which the answer is not permitted to be no, obviously. And um, they would say, sure, and we would go along and provide a training session on women, peace, and security. And we did this for Vietnam. And a young woman in the mission got quite animated about the issue and recognized a fantastic political opportunity for her country. Vietnam was ending the end of its two-year term on the council in December. By a miracle of alphabetic ordering, it's, it was going to be the president of the council in October, which is the month when 1325 is discussed and reviewed. Her deputy prime minister was going to be in town for the opening of the General Assembly in September. He was willing to stay a few more days into October. But to do so, she had to have a resolution. So she came to us and said, what should I write a resolution about? And we thought, this is a great chance to show that there's more than just a victim uh, a dynamic going on here. And we drafted a resolution that has subsequently um, attracted high praise and triggered um, this uh, architectural reform at the UN. Now, Russia was, and China were certainly not going to block a resolution presented by Vietnam. That's geopolitics. So, you know, this is, this is why it's important to understand these processes, because at that particular point, Russia was, and China would have been very hostile to that kind of an agenda. 
More recently, something else has been going on which is much more worrying, actually, and, and very disturbing, which is that Russia in particular is starting to treat this whole agenda as somewhat apolitical and symbolic and rhetoric, rhetorical. Um, a few weeks ago on October 13th, when the last resolution was passed, Russia actually passed it, put up their hand, and then in, in their remarks, uh, Ambassador Cherkin recused himself from all the main provisions of the resolution, which is just astonishing. You can't do that in international law. He would not do that in a resolution on Syria or anything else. But why is he doing this on gender? It's an interesting new strategy to actually suggest that the agenda is meaningless, which is highly problematic. But the bottom line is, when it comes to the seesawing and leapfrogging of these resolutions, um, it is politically uh, a bigger winner to advance um, uh, a protection agenda. It is also a matter of law. It is against international law and domestic law and even religious and traditional law to uh, commit violence against women. It is not an international crime not to include women in peace talks. It's not an international crime not to promote, promote the use of quotas in post-conflict elections. That's the bottom line. And that is our accountability challenge in the council. How do you build accountability tools when what you need is political will? And no amount of accountability tools and box ticking is going to deliver that will to you. Only feminist power is going to do that. All right, quickly, I'm out of time, right? So I'm going to, I have one other quick subject, and then I'm wrapping up. Okay, so it's, it's uh, UN dynamics, UN reform. Um, so the seesawing and this leapfrogging of resolutions would be incomplete without looking at, um, oh, I don't even have a slide on it, so I'll, I'll leave that one up, um, without looking at um, the dynamics of what's going on in the UN. I mentioned before that uh, UNIFEM is a teeny, a small part of the UN, and that there's been a problem for some time of the marginalization of the gender interest. And at least since 2005, very, very detailed proposals were on the books stemming from uh, Kofi Annan's World Summit to create uh, a massive gender agency, bringing together the four units to act as, quote, a form of UNICEF for women. Um, the main obstacle to this reform was actually um, the G77, and in particular, one country, India, um, that held this particular reform process hostage to the long-delayed, still-not-realized, unlikely-ever-to-be-realized reform of the Security Council. And they were holding the gender reform hostage to Security Council reform and much else beside. Um, so that produced a situation where there was no entity in the UN with the responsibility for pulling together work on sexual violence and ensuring that it was addressed properly. The uh, creation of the office of the SRSG on, on sexual violence happened in 2009. She took the first one, Margaret Wallstrom, who I believe spoke here recently, took up her position in 2010. UN Women was created in 2010 and started in 2011. A terrible, unfortunate mistiming. Because what it's done is it's institutionalized this divergence, this victim-agent divergence, uh, in concrete form, in bureaucratic form in the UN. Um, but it's worth asking, would I want or would you want something different now? Because the trouble is UN Women is a UN agency. It has an executive board. The executive board is made up of a selection of member states. They include Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. UN Women's mandate, its foundational mandate, is very, very weak on peace and security, and its relationship with the Council is not defined. UN Women's work on conflict and peace is constantly opposed by some of its executive board members. Having an independent voice, an SRSG on sexual violence, becomes an incredible asset. 
it becomes the bad cop, good cop situation, which is, of course, the key to effective advocacy work. Um, so it exacerbates the impression of competition, although, in fact, there's actually quite, quite productive collaboration. Another problem that I don't have time to discuss, though, is that as part of this separation, there's been a tendency to degender and asexualize sexual violence, um, to treat it as purely as a military tactic, which has tended to attract personnel who have no experience in um, the women's movement or in, in feminist politics, which has consequences for the way the agenda is implemented. Let me conclude. Um, as I've said, my, my aim has been to show that explanations for changes in thinking on conflict-related sexual violence should scrutinize the role and practices of insiders. Um, and I've described a normative reform project that took a strategic decision to move very rapidly in the arena of protection. And um, the seesawing and the leapfrogging of the UN resolutions, the Security Council resolutions, are a graphic illustration of the tensions within this agenda. Um, my perspective um, was that it was better to engage in the protection agenda um, than to see sexual violence neglected in the Council's broader protection of civilians' efforts. But, of course, this was not without some costs, as I've described. Um, how, though, I come back to this question, could, two such, could, could such divergent positions be produced by the same body, by the same writers? Um, and sometimes, as I've said, within days of each other. And um, it, it seems to, make, uh, to me that, you know, as somebody who contributed to most of these resolutions, but in particular those two that are five days apart, I think we have to ask, Am I a governance feminist? Am I a South feminist? Am I a transnational feminist? Am I just a schizophrenic feminist? Or am I a feminist opportunist? And that's what I am. I am a policymaker. I'm a feminist opportunist. There's no question that I suffer plenty of doubt and self-questioning over what we did. But I think I need to defend these feminist incursions, some of which failed, and uh, feminists the incursion, sorry, defend the, the incursions into these unconventional policy domains because they've opened up space for feminist conversations, for feminists, frankly, to stride down the corridors of power to a degree that has never happened before. Yes, the chances of co-optation are overwhelming, which is why critical engagement between Femocrats and feminist groups and the women's movement um, is critical. Um, I've suggested that these challenges of advocating from a position with such little leverage obliged us to make unusual and uncomfortable and unconventional allies. Um, there were costs, but the initial resolution, um, 1820, proved to be the opening of a door to an ambitious and productive campaign of engagement with the Security Council that resulted not just in an accountability system for sexual violence, but also an emerging one for a very difficult issue, the political issue of women's empowerment. Effective deployment of these accountability tools is urgent, given the concentration of attacks, not just on women's bodies, but on their autonomy and their rights by some violent extremists. In this regard, the victim-agent dichotomy is really unhelpful, and it's a false one, and it cannot be ditched in favor of a sole focus on women's power. Women aren't one or the other. To be an agent of change doesn't preclude um, experiencing some kind of sexual violence. Um, to address sexual violence doesn't diminish somebody's agency. To quote Sam Cooke, who was um, the head of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in New York, um, we need to challenge the insistence of focusing on women as agents in ways that somehow ignore that sexual violence and war are very bad things. 
Addressing the way sexual violence or the threat of it affects participation and leadership does not lend itself to sequential or separate steps. The two have to be addressed together. And eventually this is actually going to need a revision of the UN's institutional architecture on gender. Thank you very much.